The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. Currently at the moment, we've got a Grumman Avenger being restored and a de Havilland single-seat FB5 Vampire. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location. Come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Extended Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Okay, our last speaker today uh, is Baf, who's just coming down, and we're very lucky to have him because he's been in hospital earlier this week, and he also had a hip replacement recently, so he's been in the wars. Um, but um, Baf is Nathan Bosher. He uh, works here at the museum as the safety and surface technician, and uh, 
is responsible for all the um, paint jobs and loads of other stuff on the aeroplanes here. Um, so over to Bart. Yeah, good afternoon. Um, I'm going to give you a reasonably short presentation on just how we deal with our historic aircraft uh, colour schemes here at the museum. Um, and I've worked with some of you on, on various schemes, Alex. Uh, I did the um, that drawing up for the um, the mosquito. Um, that was several a uh, couple of months worth of work, sort of researching here and there and there, and then right near the end of that little project, that um, that bit of footage that he showed you, that film of the aircraft, um, proved half a dozen things on the original drawings to be completely wrong. So there was a quick change of those to uh, to get things right, and that's what happens uh, in in this sort of world of research when it comes to uh, aircraft paint schemes. So I'll just put that on slideshow, you don't need to see the rest of it. There we go. So colours, quick guide to historic aircraft paint schemes. Um, and we here at the museum, um, we've committed crimes in the past against um, uh, our, our history and I'll talk a, a little bit about that later. Um, these days it's all about historical accuracy. So well, um, that's the uh, the alternate uh, title of this one, uh, Idiot's Guide to, or Dummy's Guide to Historical Aviation. Um, you know, there's so many pitfalls that we can uh, easily drop into when we're doing these uh, these paint schemes. So, first up, we'll start with why do we actually um, paint our aeroplanes? And uh, I, I decided I'd, I'd go back to the books, the good old uh, air publications. And 2656, we were using the New Zealand version of that right up until the um, late 70s. Um, so it was kind of our, our Bible. And that's what the Bible says about uh, paint schemes. The efficient application of finishing materials to the external surfaces of aircraft is an aspect of airframe servicing, which has assumed very great importance in comparatively recent years. So it was the whole World War II thing um, really driving home that a decent paint scheme was uh, worth its weight in gold. So it also goes on the purposes of an external finish. So the finish of every service aircraft is devised to achieve one or more of the following purposes. <coughs> to protect metal surfaces from corrosion. So as we know, uh, aluminium, it, it rusts. We call it rust in the trade, we're just lazy. We don't call it corrosion. It's far too long a word for us mere painters. So uh, we decide that um, you know, you've got to stop that corrosion and you're protecting your investment and especially these days with historic aircraft, you know, that investment is big, big money these days. So, uh, you know, during the war they expected these things to be shot down but uh, now we'd like to keep them for as long as we can. Uh, weatherproofing wooden components, uh, mosquito especially, um, but wooden components were used on aircraft right up until the camera. The, uh, the vertical fin on the camera has plywood panels on the side of it there and they were uh, weatherproofed in exactly the same way as the much, much older aircraft. Um, to tauten and strengthen fabric skins, that sort of uh, became a little bit moot as aircraft got faster and faster. Fabric skins didn't handle it that well but um, you know, the Corsair, um, 400 mile an hour plus and it had fabric skin panels. So everything uh, that you had to do for the metal components and the wood. You also had to care about your fabric skin components, um, stop them flying apart in flight, which is never a great idea. Uh, provide camouflage. 
simple one on that is no one likes to be shot down, so uh, the more advantage you can give yourself of being slightly disguised is always a good idea. Uh, to facilitate identification, that's our roundels and, and various other things, because no one actually likes to be shot down by their own side. So uh, we go into the um, visibility markings of aircraft, which ebbed and flowed over the years where uh, you went into the Vietnam War, they camouflaged all their aircraft, and then by the time that was over, they hardly camouflaged anything. And uh, of course, these days it's sort of flip-flopping back the other way again. Uh, decreased drag on high-speed aircraft, that's all about fuel savings. And that brings us to the end of that. So that's the working principles. Um, you know, why do we need it? Um, essential principles to which attention should be paid when aircraft finishing work is undertaken. So failure to observe, observe any of these may result in the complete job being ruined with a consequent waste of time, effort and material. And for those last uh, time, effort and material, read dollars. Okay, you don't want your pain schemes falling off uh, 20 minutes into its first test flight, um, which happened to us on a P3 Orion. Um, up at Woodburn that we'd repainted. We found out afterwards that the big sheets of paint that were falling off the aircraft were actually down to one of these principles, um, in that the airframe mechanics had been smoothing out the sealant on the joints with silicon-based barrier cream. So the paint was never going to stick to the aeroplane in the first place. Cost them probably in the tune of about $30,000 for us to fix that job up. So cleanliness, and that's not of your aircraft, that's the cleanliness of your equipment. You want nice clean equipment, you don't have to spend time fixing your equipment halfway through a paint job. Surface preparation, that's the uh, the biggest issue. If you don't have a spotlessly clean aeroplane to, to work on, um, then it is going to fall off. Stirring, um, it, it may seem a bit of a no-brainer that you stir the paint tin, um, but if you don't stir it up properly and it's uh, our, our basic training told us that it's two minutes minimum, but if you don't get all the pigments, the carrier and the binders all working together properly, then uh, your paint is A, not going to stick, and B, it's probably going to come out the wrong colour. So stirring, very, very important. Shop conditions um, always made me laugh a wee bit, that one. We used to paint uh, skyhawks in the corner of the hangar at Woodburn with a a big old 100-foot parachute draped around it to stop the uh, paint dust from getting out into the rest of the hangar where the guys were working. So our shop conditions were a little bit rough. We didn't have the uh, benefit of uh, the big flash paint shops that Air New Zealand or the Australian Air Force have. So uh, shop conditions are what they are. You can take um, mitigating steps around that, spray a bit of water on the floor to keep dust down. Uh, but it's not always ideal. Sometimes you're even painting the aircraft outside. Uh, drying time. You normally do more than one coat, but if you rush the job and try and put the second coat on before the first one has had its proper time to cure, um, one, you will run into those problems of colour shift, and the other one is it just might not stick to the aircraft at all. So paint can be a little bit funny about its drying time, so that is the one thing you do tend to try and uh, observe fully when you're painting an aeroplane. Storage, uh, that's the storage of the paint itself. Um, we store our paint in concrete bunkers and over winter it gets, you know, it's like a fridge in there. You can't just pull a tin out 
and start painting with it straight away, you've got to actually let it warm up for several hours. Otherwise, those binders and stuff will not uh, work properly, and especially the colour shift problems as well. So you're supposed to turn the tins over every six months to stop all the sediment um, and, and the uh, pigments sinking to the bottom. Um, yeah, I'd spend probably a week if I had to turn over all my tins, so I'm a bit lazy. I've left them on the shelf for the last 20 years and just spend a bit of extra time in that stirring phase when we're uh, mixing them up. And fire risk. Well, you, you, know, you don't smoke while you're painting. Um, it makes for a very short paint job and a, a very spectacular finish. But bottom line, it's all about the money. Dollars, dollars, dollars. Okay, the selection of our materials. Now, this is how we select for, um, well, this covers both, actually. This was written for the Historic um, Aviation Group. So that's flying aircraft as well as um, stationary or static um, museum aircraft. So the selection of the uh, materials is, is quite, um, quite important. We can make different choices with our selection um, to the guys who are actually flying the aircraft. So it's, um, it's about protecting your investment more than anything else. We're invested in history and other guys are invested in you know, their multi-million dollar uh, restorations. So our main consideration, do we use a lacquer or an enamel or a, a two-pack enamel that they use these days? Um, I try and avoid the two-pack enamels because they're not historically accurate and there's other issues that go with that as well. The biggest one being, uh, is it compatible if you are just doing paint touch-ups? Is it compatible with the paint that's already on the aircraft? Because that can uh, lead to problems of adhesion and to uh, paint fade as well. So first one, of course, historic accuracy. Um, that, that goes across the board with many, many things, but there are other considerations around that as well. Is it flying or static? Um, you can use um, simpler paint systems if it's a static aircraft and the older paint systems um, which aren't really suited to high-speed flight um, and because a static aircraft like ours are parked indoors all the time you're not having to worry about um, degradation from the weather. Uh, maintenance is always a good one. Um, matte finishes can be an absolute pain in the butt for for cleanliness of an aircraft, and cleanliness of course leads to corrosion issues if you're, you're not keeping the aircraft clean. So maintenance um, requirements will dictate some of the, the types of paints that you use. Uh, in the real world, there's um, lesser, and by the real world I mean flying aeroplanes, um, there's a lesser consideration to, to a lot of the historical accuracy and for various reasons as well. So. Is it functional? You want your paint to stick to the aircraft so you can choose a paint system that actually just works rather than some of the old ones that uh, don't work quite as well. Does it look good? You know, you've got to have a nice looking aircraft. If it's your investment, you know, no, no aircraft are cheap, not one of them. Uh, so you, know, you want it to look good. And do you have uh, special considerations from sponsors and the likes? And there are the purists out there who look at that and go, oh my god, it's got bloody, you know, a, a, a drink company splayed all over it and, and it looks awful. But the simple matter of fact is, if it didn't have that finish on it, 
that wouldn't have been flying in the first place. The sponsorship can lead to a lot of, um, drive a lot of decisions behind that. So me, I'd love to see one of those flying. So yeah, chuck Red Bull all over it, I don't care. So that's the real world. Um, in my world, it's a little bit different. I'm on the historical side of things, so I'm going for accuracy. Um, as I said, we have committed sins out here in the past um, by misrepresenting aircraft. Um, and, and some of them have worn paint schemes that they never wore in their service career. And they're wearing serial numbers that don't actually represent the aircraft either. So these days, um, we are all about the accuracy. So accuracy um, has a couple of different issues with it. Um, where am I? So is it going to be a representative scheme? So it's some of the aircraft we have in the museum are not genuine New Zealand examples. Uh, so they are done in a representative scheme. So you can pick a scheme that best fits the story that you want to tell for that particular uh, airframe type. Or you say, we've got, say, 34 second from the top there, so we want to replicate 34 exactly the way it is in that picture. So it, it's, the accuracy comes down to the story you want to tell and then selecting a point in time that uh, the, the story represents. These days with um, sort of new acquisitions that we're getting, you know, we'll, we'll uh, the... Um, Iroquois out in the main hall is prime example of that. It's going to stay in its, the, the scheme that it's finished its surface, uh, service career in. So that's that particular point of its service history is the very end point. Um, saves me a lot of hard work too. So uh, then we start, if we're going for accuracy, we, we pick the aircraft. That's uh, that's the scheme I drew up for the uh, RNZAF Historic Flight Harvard uh, 1015 um, and that was the first scheme we could find that that aircraft ever wore. So, um, you know, we, we picked that point in time but if it's that aircraft, it's got a long history so we need to uh, do a bit more research. That's the next scheme or actually scheme number three, there's another one between those, I didn't want to bore you with all of them. But uh, that's another scheme, that particular aircraft war. So did we want to represent that point in time? Um, or shift a bit further on, 1958. 1015 had seven different paint schemes in its lifetime. And some of those were repainted over and over again. And minor things would change on, on the uh, paint scheme as it uh, progressed through its service. So we're picking that point in time and then researching that, that particular point in time. Uh, DDTs, these are paint specs, Directorate of Technological Development, that's the British British paint specs. Um, that one, 772A, is gloss finish. So do we want a gloss finish? Is the gloss finish the correct finish that aircraft should have? Um, it might be a completely different spec. 754A, temperate land scheme, that's the, um, what the mosquito wears. So that's the, the paint system spec for, for that. So we, we then select which one of those we want. Um, British aircraft could have a British standard, um, or like the Harvard, we used British paints on the Harvards right up until uh, they actually left full-time service. So are we looking for a British standard paint number, 
or are we going with the American federal standard? Uh, federal standards um, tend to have a lot more paints to choose from. Uh, the British like to keep it simple, so uh, federal standards can, they're a lot easier to, um, to work out these days, they're a lot better documented. The British uh, older schemes tend to be a little bit difficult. Um, or is it a completely off to the side, doesn't have a federal or British standard, it could be a DuPont number. So the um, Kitty Hawks, when they first brought the Kitty Hawks into RNZAF service, they were straight from the, um, the Curtis factory, and Curtis used DuPont paints only. So the colour schemes that our uh, original P40s were in, it was a RAF paint scheme, but it was done with DuPont equivalent paints. And the only one out of the, uh, the colours that actually matches the British one is the dark green and the, the dark earth is actually a slightly different colour. So we run into those issues of um, can we get DuPont paints anymore? Uh, thankfully we can, still one of the biggest paint companies in the world. Um, then we're down to our gloss schemes again. Do we want gloss for a maintenance um, issue or can we... Um, get away with the matte finish. Gloss is um, not always 100% gloss. Same issue with matte. Matte paint generally will be no more than 70% matte. And we ran into an issue with this um, on the C-130s many years ago when they changed to a uh, anzathane paint product. And the engineering officer who, who negotiated the contract with the paint company had no understanding of matte, um, matte levels in paint. So he said it's got to be 100% matte because it's a tactical aeroplane, 100%. And they said, are you sure about that? Yep, 100% matte. So consequently, the paint they supplied us had so much matting agent in it, which, if you don't know, is actually just talcum powder. Um, and it was like a sponge. So before you'd even finished the paint job, before it had even dried, any oil that was on the aircraft leaking out of a seam would start to appear in the paint job before it had even dried. So um, matte levels, you know, 70% is, is the most. So you hear things like semi-gloss and that. Um, most of the matte paints we used to use in the service were actually a, um, what they call a semi-gloss. They were never fully matte which makes them a lot easier to clean too, and that's back to those big dollars when you're spending money on cleaning agents. So then we've got to look at uh, representative markings, roundels. Roundels changed over the years, um, so if you're picking that point in time, you've actually got to make sure you get that um, totally correct. The, the um, mosquito was a point uh, of order on that one. When uh, we first started researching that scheme, we went with the just the blue and red roundels on the top surfaces, but we found that at a certain point in 1945, over a period of two months, they changed all those upper surface markings to the later uh, C roundel with the yellow ring around the outside. They also, at one stage, didn't have the yellow ring around the outside. So over a period of about three months, you had three different roundels that you could choose from. So we're right back to picking that particular point in time. Um, our kitty hawk out in the main hall there has got stripes and, and white tails and all sorts of things all over it, bars on the outside of the roundels. 
that progressed over a period of about a year from being a plain roundel to having stripes on the wings and stripes on the fuselage and white bars on the roundels and then a completely white tail. So it's all down to picking that particular point in time. Um, fonts for your serial numbers or whatever. This is a particularly difficult one that we strike because um, they just didn't have uh, stencil board by the sound of it. They just got people to uh, hand paint everything. So anyone who had the slightest artistic inkling would be dragged off one job and say, you go and paint the serial numbers on that aircraft. <coughs> so they'd all be painted by hand. And uh, so everyone was slightly different. And this is where actually good photographic evidence uh, comes into play. So serial numbers can be a particular bugbear when it comes to getting a truly accurate scheme. And on some of our aircraft, you look at them, and uh, during the war, in the Pacific especially, you'd see an aircraft and it had a stenciled number on the tail, NZ whatever, um, and we've got evidence of it on our Dauntless, that they actually painted it by hand to look like it was stenciled on. So <laughs> you wonder why they bothered instead of just filling in the gap. You know? And then some of them, they would stencil them and then get a, a brush out and fill in the gaps on the stencils. So it's how these things are done. Uh, yeah, it, it blows your mind. Um, actually, servicing stencils, hand cut or machine cut. Um, I've got original World War II era um, stencil machines that I can cut these things. I did all the stencils for... Uh, Bill Reed's air aircraft, the Anson, and uh, because they fit the bill. Um, our Oxford was the same. We could do all our stencils on the rotary hand the cutting machines. Uh, Ferry Mead's Mosquito, on the other hand, I've had a close look at some of the original stencils on that, and they're all cut by hand. So they're cut very fiddly, one-inch high lettering, but it's all being cut by some poor bugger with a scalpel blade or a knife to cut these stencils and then they're applied to the aircraft. So uh, these days you're, you're lucky you can take a photograph of something, stick it through a computer program and actually print that off, get those stencils incredibly accurately. Um, our Catalina has stencils which are less than quarter of an inch high in uh, the blister windows at the back and they were hand cut. It's like a, a 15 word thing. The guy must have spent a day cutting these tiny little letters out. So I can replicate those on a computer in a couple of hours. Um, if we're lucky, we have really good stenciling diagrams. That, that's out of the American publication for the Beaver aircraft. It tells us uh, exactly what goes where. So they are you know, very invaluable to have a nice, uh, tidy, clean, easy to read, you know, no nonsense drawing like that. Or we go to the uh, original De Havilland Mosquito draw, uh, vampire drawings where it's a little less obvious um, and then that that's actually a, it's a big A1 drawing we've got down in the, the archive and then there'll be a piece over here and then somewhere over on this side of the drawing there'll be another bit of information that counteracts the piece of information you thought you had right in this corner hence all the highlighted markings on that one that was a, a working drawing I was using to uh, do some paint scheme drawings for Checkmaster resins uh, for their 72nd scale vampire models. Pardon? Plumbob, yep, that's, that's a marking that donates the point that you uh, hang your plumbob for while you're rigging the aircraft. 
So there's, yeah, there's a multitude of markings on those aircraft. Um, that's the Oxford drawings from Airspeed. Um, when I did our Oxford scheme, it took me about 18 months of research. Um, that was particularly frustrating uh, because of that contradictory thing. You'd have a series of drawings. These are all on microfilm. But uh, as I was going through them, I found um, some markings had four different contradictory bits of information. So that nearly drove me crazy. Uh, but at least that's a good drawing. Um, some of them are a bit more simple. That's the paint scheme drawing for the Harvards in the earlier um, fire orange scheme. Um, and then they'll have a list of, um, of servicing markings that you should put on it, um, which you then have to rummage through the other pile of drawings you've got to find the original American drawing, which is a oblique uh, hand-drawn drawing which has arrows here and there and tells you what to put, but it doesn't even tell you what size the, the stencils are and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's nice to have accurate drawings. Or you could go with the Hudson, um, and that's the Hudson paint scheme drawings from Lockheed. Um, fairly rudimentary, open to a lot of guesswork. Um, then, <laughs> have you got all the information? Um, yeah, or is it going to just blow your mind? So it really can um, can be very frustrating. Um, I did a scheme for the Sunderland, which everyone goes, well, it's, it's white and grey on top. But then if you try and work out all the servicing markings on the side, we had 16 Sunderlands. Everyone was different, and everyone had been painted at least three times in its lifespan. So that's 16 times 3 variations out of about a hundred different stencils on the aircraft so yeah 18 months and I got a generic scheme out of that one so that's it uh, what color was it yeah now we're into our color matching um, that's um, British standard chart there you'll recognize a few of those uh, numbers on there Odinil number 16 on this side um, that's what generally uh, is, is assumed to be a lot of cockpit green, um, but you'll also see that um, I'll talk about cockpit green later on. So how do we work it out? Documenting our colours. Now, uh, if you've been to Ferrymead, you might recognise that. That's the Hudson at Ferrymead. Um, it's a, a gold mine of um, painting information because all they did was paint the next scheme over the top of the old one. So a bit of archaeology on that, and you can work your way back, find out exactly what's on it. Um, so we want to match our colours exactly. Uh, it's a very, um, very difficult thing to do, uh, as you'll see shortly. Colour shift. The moment you have finished spraying the colour from the tin and it starts to dry, it's suffering from colour shift. And colour shift can be down to all sorts of things, environmental issues, the age of the paint or whatever, but generally colour shift think fading and it's occurring from the moment you put the paint on the aircraft. So exact paints become very, very difficult to find from colour shift. What was the original colour? It's handy to know and then we run into those other issues of, of figuring out um, just what was original, what um, pigments they used different factories use different pigments to come up with supposedly the same colour. And they would appear as the same colour the moment they left the spray gun, and they'd be about the same colour for the first two months. And then one 
would fade quicker than any other because of the pigments that were used within that paint. So uh, big problems this end of the world, we were painting uh, with supposedly British standard colours but they were manufactured in New Zealand and Australia with completely different pigments to the, what they were using on the other side of the world. So the original, uh, if you could find the original paint manufacturer and find out what pigments they're using, that's um, another issue. Who, what, where and when? And this is where it really gets sticky. Who painted it? What was their painting style? Were they put the paint on slowly and carefully or were they throw the paint on nice and thick? Um, because that changed the speed at which the paint would dry, which changed the, um, the pigment drop or gravity in, in the pigment. Um, so who painted it? And we found this out um, when we were doing the P3 Orions at Woodburn in the all over grey scheme the first time. Um, some people painted slightly differently. Um, if you, the what is what type of spray gear you were using. So if you're using a normal spray gun that everyone's familiar with or the big pressure feed spray gun because we are dealing with 80 gallons of paint at a time. Those two different uh, spray apparatus would produce a slightly different colour at the end of it because of that pigment sink. Uh, where was it painted? That's your environmental issues. Was it um, inside a nice paint shop or was it in the, um, in the hangar? And when? Uh, what time of day was it? Was it raining outside? Was it humid? Um, all these things had an effect and when we did the Orions at Woodburn um, we would paint them in sections as each section was completed on the major group servicing and we'd do the forward fuselage one day, one weekend, the rear fuselage would be a couple of weeks later, the tail would be at a different time and then the wings maybe both at the same time, maybe not. So we'd have big buckets of grey paint but by the time you'd finished the aircraft was four different colours. If you knew where to look where the join was, you could tell the difference between uh, which day it was painted on. All out of the same tin. So, very frustrating, that one. It all comes down to research, research, research. Um, and you can spend inordinate amounts of time on research, and then someone will turn up with a photograph that proves you're wrong. So, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, it's, it's joyous because you've now got the correct information, but it's, um, it's like, yeah, there's 18 months of work um, sort of all being proved incorrect. Um, this is a couple of slides I added from the last time I gave this, gave this presentation. This is the tail off our uh, original tail off our Bristol freighter. Um, it was taken off when the aircraft came down here and they put another tail on that had been cut in half <coughs> so they could fold the tail and put it into uh, number 7 hangar. So this is the original tail off 03 and when we pulled that out of Whedon's um, it had faded quite a bit on the outside. You'll see the lighter patch in the middle of it. That's an area that hasn't been cleaned yet. Um, so it's been polished back to um, give us a better idea of the actual colour and from that I could take a colour match with the paints that I, uh, I have in my locker. Luckily, um, all the paints I needed for that were down in my locker and they're all exact match because I think some of them are actually the same batch of paint that was on the original aircraft. They date back to 1972. Um, so it's handy to have when we go for the original colour, I've got it in the locker. So we had a look at that and we uh, did a bit of archaeology on it and we wanted to replicate it um, it had to be repainted, there's corrosion all over it. 
So we wanted to replicate it exactly how it should be or, or how it was when it was in service. So there's issues. There's a um, prime example of some rather bad um, tradesmanship. Um, our, our stencil has been misaligned. The second line's not straight. Um, there's no gap down here between the and and the anchor, and they should have all been aligned centrally. But we're doing that uh, exactly the way it was, so I replicated that stencil um, on the original stencil machine and sprayed it back onto the, um, the brand new paint job in exactly the same fashion. I measured down from what the rivet heads to find the start and finish points. So we replicated those um, <coughs> historical cock-ups down to the last millimetre. Well, even that angle, right? Yep, yep, it's on the wrong angle as well. So, yeah, we did that, uh, did that wholesale. Um, we also found that the aircraft had, had a touch-up when it came back from uh, Singapore after its time of 41 Squadron. And you can see the red lines of actually drawn around the original 41 Squadron badge that was on the tail. It's a, it's a big circle about this big. Um, so we could still see that underneath this touch-up paint. So we very carefully sanded it back to so we could trace around it. I then uh, did the modern technology thing, took some photographs of it, put it into the computer and actually recreated that as a, uh, a computer cut stencil that I could put it straight back onto the aircraft. So it matches exactly what was on there. Um, so that's uh, the finished product. She's, she's lying down the other way at the moment, but uh, yeah, um, you'll notice up the top there's two of the, the yellow um, slinging markings, one of them's back to front. It shouldn't be like that according to the manual, but you know, we, that's the way we did it. So that's how she came out, out after a bit of research. And uh, the best thing about that was I didn't have to go around and match paints. So I just went down the locker and grabbed a tin. So that's what we're up to in the, the historical side of things here. Um, cockpit green. Um, there are as many cockpit greens as there are cockpits. Um, so my general rule of thumb is, boom! First rule of cockpit green, we don't talk about cockpit green. That's a whole different kettle of fish. So we won't go there today, we just do not have the time. In gold. Now this is out of uh, Robert McKesh, um, his Restoring Museum Aircraft. It's a book he did for the Smithsonian. Absolutely brilliant uh, publication. There are things in it that have been proven wrong since, and they admit that, but uh, it's, a, it's a great reference publication if you haven't seen it. And this was one of the quotes. If it doesn't look right on the outside, it probably isn't right on the inside. So it's about getting your paint schemes to look right. And, and my take on that one is, um, and after talking to guys like Paul McSweeney up at um, Aspects and the guys at Pioneer, and, and their, their bugbear is that someone would come along, pay them $150,000 for a refurbishment on their Harvard, and then try and skimp on the paint scheme. And uh, our take on that was, if you've got a $2 million aircraft with a $2,000 paint job, it's only going to look like a $2,000 aircraft. So, uh, yep, if that's one of the best quotes I've ever seen on, uh, on aircraft maintenance and, and paint schemes. So that's, um, that's us. That's the old safety and surface boys. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's how I have to deal with historical paint schemes in this day and age. Questions? Don't talk about that. Maybe I don't put it in the picture. Ooh.
Yeah, yeah. Well, that that was one of the ones that had been um, mismarked. It had the, its wrong serial number on it. So we've dealt to that, and it's now in its original RNZAF scheme. Uh, my next one will be the Tiger Moth that's out here. And that's actually painted with um, two-pack capithane paint, so that changing the serial number on that's going to be a lot more difficult. And that's that paint selection thing. We never needed to use two-pack paints for our historical aircraft, and then it's actually caused us a, a major maintenance issue further down the track. Yeah. How's Catalina going? Catalina, my next job, that's Christmas when my hip heals up. Um, yeah, we get, we're actually, because it's, um, it's a non-RNZAF aircraft, and we figured out that it was built by um, Canadian Vickers. Um, but, well, it's two different aircraft at the moment, and both pieces were built by Canadian Vickers. And at that time, they were leaving the factory in all over white. So that's what we're actually going to do with it. And then that's going to... Um, one of the ideas they had for the cat is that it will be on display and we'll use the big slab side of it as a projection to so project wartime footage of cats onto the onto the thing like that. So that's a that's a nice example where you've got an aircraft that's got no provenance, but it serves our purpose to tell a particular story. But then we've got to work around you know what what colour do we want to use to be able to tell that story in a different way. The thing is, it's, it's, it was such a well used aircraft during the war with so many countries. Yeah. All over the world. Yeah, it's an iconic piece it of is. kit. Yeah. I love it. It's it's a bit like the C-130. It's as ugly as sin, yeah. but you've got to love it. Yeah. Any more? Um, are you sort of open to helping uh, owners of aeroplanes with yep. paint schemes? Yep, I've done paint schemes for flying aircraft, um, museums, model companies. Um, you know, it's what we're here for, and it's it's quite a big part of my job. Um, I'm currently researching Iroquois paint schemes um, and there's 13 distinct schemes that I can figure out so far and, and only information on nine of them. So, yeah, we do it and, and it's why we're here because we want to see the historical accuracy and whether it's for, you know, um, for commercial operators, um, private pilots, whatever. That's what we're here for. So always feel free to just give us a contact through the info um, on the website. Okay. Right. Done. Thanks, mate. You're welcome, mate. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs>